From the Los Angeles Times, this is The Envelope, the podcast, your ultimate guide to award season. I'm one of your hosts, Mark Olson. And I'm your other host, Yvonne Villarreal. Every week, our podcast showcases key voices across both TV and film. And Yvonne, award season's finally picking up real momentum again. Last week, we had nominations for the Golden Globes, the SAG Awards, the Critics' Choice Awards. Lots of early mornings, Mark. But it's an exciting time, too. And you and I have gotten to talk to a lot of the nominees, people like Anya Taylor-Joy, Andy Samberg, Shira Haas. Also, Hugh Grant, Christina Applegate, Linda Cardellini. And then, of course, there's this week's guest, Josh O'Connor, who played Prince Charles in seasons three and four of The Crown on Netflix. Uh, What did the two of you talk about? Oh, so many things, you know, from his grandmother's ceramics to the scrapbooks he makes to get into the right mindset for each character that he plays. And of course, we talked about Prince Charles. To me, the interest in playing Prince Charles wasn't playing this public figure. It's the the idea of exploring masculinity and the fragility of masculinity and the kind of the epic questions that face, you know, men in the world of power. But Josh O'Connor, that sounds pretty intense, Yvonne. It is, but that's why he got nominated for a Golden Globe and a SAG. It works. But like I said, there's some light stuff in our conversation, too. I really, really enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to hearing it. And we'll be back after this short break. COVID-19 is moving fast, and so are LA Times journalists. Our job is to separate fact from fiction, because you also help spread the truth when you are informed. Because in a society where we all have to stand six feet apart, the LA Times is our connection. It's become our community. We're going to be here giving you information to offer a little bit of clarity. Stay safe. Be informed. Take care of one another. We'll get through this. Subscribe at latimes.com. Now, before we hear Yvonne talk to Josh O'Connor about The Crown, here's our awards writer, Glenn Whip. So now we know the nominations for the Golden Globes and the SAG Awards. And I could devote this whole minute, or maybe multiple minutes, to making fun of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association. I mean, James Corden, best actor? I half liked the prom, but the half I liked was the half that James Corden wasn't in. I mean, every once in a while, the Globes can be like an accidental force for good. Like the year they gave Steve Carell a surprise nomination for the second season of The Office. At the time, NBC was hedging its bets about even renewing the show. And then Carell gets nominated and somehow he wins the Golden Globe. And after that, everything changed. NBC ordered a third season just because of the Globe. I mean, take a moment to imagine a world in which Carell doesn't win or or maybe wasn't even nominated. NBC cancels The Office after two seasons. Jim and Pam never get married. No Andy, no Aaron. And all those hours we spent binge-watching The Office would have been spent, I mean, I don't know, on what, but it wouldn't have been nearly as comforting. So belittle the HFPA for its lack of credentials, for its free-loading ways, for its bizarre choices, but... Every once in a while, say every decade or so, it does something so right. Like even this year, when Chloe Zhao became the first woman of Asian descent to be nominated for director. I mean, yay for that. So, I mean, all is forgiven, right? 
Except maybe that court nomination. I mean, that's beyond contempt. Thanks, as always, Glenn, for sharing that time with us. And now let's get to Yvonne's conversation with Josh O'Connor. Josh, thanks so much for joining me today. It's great to speak with you. It's great to speak to you. Yeah, hi. Where are you calling from? Where are you Zooming from, actually? I am Zooming from my lovely flat in London, in North London. And you currently found me in my, my ceramics corner. I love it. So that's a little treat. I do want to talk about your love of art because your mother's a ceramicist and like you've been curating her works, right? Trying to find some of them. My grandmother. Yeah, I'll show you just quickly. Yeah. This is one of hers. So it's two. (laughs) It's going to be good. Uh, It's a man, a nice man with a nice jumper holding the hand of a very nice lady with a nice red dress and a yellow top. And they're stood in front of a nice green bush. (laughs) God, it sounds rubbish, but it's really nice. And it's got a beautiful glaze and it's my grandmother's and I love it very much. Oh my goodness. Um, She made this a long time ago as a gift. She doesn't make anymore, but she's, yeah, she's pretty amazing. That's a little exclusive for you. There you go. That's very neat. Um, So how have you been spending your quarantine? Um, To be honest, in the last, I mean, I've been flat out, to be honest. I was, um, obviously the first lockdown in the spring was fine and I was at home and I did lots of gardening and then um, I started filming in August, September on uh, Mothering Sunday with Olivia Coleman and Colin Firth and Odessa Young and then I had two days off and went straight on to uh, Romeo, Romeo and, Juliet. and Juliet so I'm doing that now, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll talk about that more, uh, some of your upcoming projects um, at the end of the conversation but tell me what the last few weeks have been like like what feedback have you been getting about this season of the crown you know prince charles is quite the menace this season i know uh, sorry about that um yeah it's been do you know what it's been really heartwarming actually i mean in a kind of weird way obviously there's a lot of you're horrible <laughs> but i don't mind that i mean that's literally my that was my job you know i loved it at the end of season three you know, people's response was, you made us fall in love with Prince Charles. And and that was my aim then. So I was really proud that we managed to do that. And then season four, the whole point was to kind of strip it all back and, and do something really interesting. And, and I feel like we have. And the response has been unbelievable. And I've had such unbelievable notes from people and, you know, all over the world who just, yeah, I'm just really touched and really honoured. Well, as you mentioned, you know, last season we saw the sort of vulnerable and insecure Charles. And this season we see, you know, a slightly more, I guess, troubled version is how I would put it. And a crucial aspect to his story this season is like this sort of simmering anger he feels because, you know, he's told what he needs to think and how he needs to feel doesn't matter. And you could sort of see that he's sort of exasperated by the circumstances of his life. What struck you about exploring his struggles? And did you even see them as struggles? Because he is this sort of man bound and awed by his status. So I'm just curious what your take on it was. I mean, generally in my career, I'm constantly fascinated by masculinity and the fragility of masculinity. And 
the ultimate sort of masculine power status model is is the idea of the monarch, the king. You know, the king of England in historical terms is a man of power and strength and stability and duty. And my initial thing with this character was that I thought, I don't think he is that. Um, I think he's softer around the edges. There's a kind of an empathy about him, a, a sort of, he wants love. He wants to give love and receive love. And I think that was really interesting to me was playing those antitheses, you know, off off each other. And And in this season, you know, last season, my big sort of, I suppose, philosophical battle was this idea that here was a man who was waiting for his mother to die for his life to take meaning. And that to me felt profound and challenging and interesting. I think this season, it was to do with marriage, how difficult marriage is, and how ultimately, you know, you can have good intentions. And I think I do believe that I I was really keen that we found moments of, of real love between Diana and Charles. And, and, and so for me, it was kind of the tragedy of, of a failed marriage was the big, the kind of crux this year. Well, in the finale, that moment where he explodes at Diana after her trip to New York, how was it to sort of see him release it all after sort of mostly suppressing his emotions? I say mostly because he certainly voiced himself on some level. But, you know, as you're playing it, are you thinking of one sort of driving force that has him unravel or do all his hangups sort of converge in your mind to feel that performance? I really loved the fact that basically Diana brilliantly, and we kind of fight for her to, to find these moments, but she has about four or five moments with the Queen and with Philip, and, you know, with various people where she's able to say, this marriage isn't working for this reason, this reason, this reason. And she's heard... I say heard, she's listened to and then rejected. Her point is heard. And what I found really helped me was knowing that that was going on. Every time Charles goes into a room with the Queen, he actually never gets a chance to say what he thinks. The night before the marriage, again, this is in our our fictionalised world, the night before the marriage, that scene between uh, Olivia and I, where he's just crying, and she just tells him to get on with it, basically. That's the night before the wedding. There's like two times before that he tries to say, I don't know if this is right. And he's shot down. And and then there's the big scene where he goes in with a letter prepared to explain why this marriage isn't working. And he's shot down and Diana says what she thinks. I loved this because I was like, well, okay, so at some point I knew that he's going to have to express the disaster. And if that comes out in this kind of like animalistic sort of anger... I think that just sort of happened naturally because I felt this frustration for the character that I believe, you know, and, the, and what I was trying to do was to tell the story of someone who who wanted, not just for his sake, but for Diana's sake and for the children's sake, he wanted this marriage to end because it wasn't working. And and I love this line of just kind of, I refuse any longer to be blamed for this grotesque misalliance. It's like, that was closure for me. So yeah, I always looked forward to that scene. Although I felt awful because Emma's my great friend. So it's horrible to her. But we're fine. We've overcome it. I'm a little disappointed, Josh, that you did not say that line with the same fury that you said in the scene. Uh, I really wanted to experience it again. I've never shouted in my entire life in real life. So it was like, it's kind of, it wasn't just the character then that was like, all of Josh's frustrations over the years, just like, 
Well, and it's such a product of the time in terms of when I was viewing it, because when you as Charles are screaming that line, all I could think about was, oh, my God, all the particles that must be in the air coming out of your mouth, all the like, you know, the aerosol. I was just thinking about that. Oh, yeah. I mean, it does feel it kind of that's how, sort of how it felt, to be honest. <laughs> Um, there's a been, there's been a really but, there's been a really kind of funny response on. I saw a fan the other day on I can't remember if it was Twitter or on Instagram or something, who was very interested by the vein in my forehead when I was shouting, and I hadn't noticed it and was like texting my family, being like, "Do I have a weird vein in my forehead?" and trying to take selfies to see if it's there. I don't think it is, but anyway. I don't see the vein as I'm talking to you, I can assure you. But, you know, maybe it's because you've never screamed and it just was not prepared for that much emotion. Who knows? I won't scream at you tonight, don't worry. (laughs) But you mentioned, you know, the sort of line that interested you in the role of Charles in the first place, this idea of um, not having meaning in his life until his mother dies. And there are so many interactions, and you just mentioned one of them, that moment with his mother before the wedding. There are so many that reveal bits and pieces. There are other ones with the queen. There's that moment with Prince Philip, you know, talking about fathers. And even the way he interacts with Camilla and the way they sort of finish each other's sentences and she sort of gives him the space to, like, take the stage or take center stage what was one moment that sort of really unlocked something for you in terms of getting a handle on the position he's in? Was there one from this season? Well, there's a few in this season. There were kind of various levels, but we shot out of sequence. So, you know, for instance, one of the first episodes we shot was episode six, which is the Australia tour. And I remember there was definitely a breakthrough there, which was... I knew that to me, when I first read the scripts, for me, one of the most important scenes, uh, and you just kind of nodded to it there, was quite a small scene at the beginning of an episode. And I can't remember which one it is, but it's one of the later ones where Camilla and Charles tell a joke and Camilla gives him the punchline. They play this joke. It's one they've told before. It's amongst their kind of horsey friends. And she sets him up and he gets the punchline and everyone roars with laughter and When I read that scene, I thought, this is it. This is about the woman he loves, what he needs, just as, and this is where I'm going to get to in a second, just as I think what Diana needs, and this is where Charles and Diana, believe it or not, I believe, in our world, are actually very similar and need the same things. I read that and I always, I often thought that, that that was going to be the point of kind of, well, this is so important for the story of Charles. I think what I found really fascinating was actually in Spain, when we were shooting the Australian tour, there was a moment where we got out of a car, you know, hundreds of extras lining the streets, and they were being told, you know, for the scene, to scream Diana, just go crazy for Diana. It was the kind of height of the, the turning point of Diana becoming this icon. And so we got out of this car... And they screamed and they screamed. They were brilliant. These like extras from Spain were just extraordinary. And they were just screaming, screaming, screaming. And meanwhile, this, this kind of cascade, they group around Diana. And I'm left with my aide on the outside of this circle looking in. And I thought it was so powerful because I thought, this is it. As we know, because of series three and playing him then, he spent all this time trying to be heard, trying to be acknowledged, and take the spotlight, essentially. 
And the moment he he gets married, here's someone who takes all the light. You know, not not it's not her fault. She's just this kind of machine of like there's something magical and spiritual almost about her, which means that there's no light for Charles at all. That moment for me was a kind of big big breakthrough in terms of understanding his frustration and his you know call it jealousy call it whatever you want but that that was that was the kind of the spark of of the downfall essentially of that marriage well as you mentioned earlier this is very much in playing this role it's a study of masculinity and the male ego but it's also interesting to see how the family is sort of divided you have like the members who are dutiful and adhere to sort of what their title entails. And then there are those who sort of feel suffocated by it and struggle to sort of put their needs behind their duties. Was there anything that sort of helped you, I don't know if sympathize is the word, but maybe understand that dilemma, particularly as someone who prior to this series was not interested in the royal family? Yeah, I mean, I, I, in terms of kind of in reality, I have great sympathy for him and for them. I mean, to be honest, for all of them. I mean, I think that they've got a tough, some of the toughest deals there is. They're born into this responsibility. And so I have huge sympathy. And actually, I, you know, I remain a kind of Republican in the British sense of the word, not the American sense. If anything... I remain a Republican for their sake. I'm like, if we got rid of the the monarchy, then I think that they'd be happier. But I don't know, maybe not. Maybe they'll hate me for that. But I I suppose there's a kind of, I have great sympathy for them. But it's a weird thing because it's, you know, also the real Prince Charles, I feel so distant from because I, I, I see this as a character and it's pure fiction, and I've worked on that kind of level, you know, in, in creating something that feels real and that has notes of the real person, but also that it goes hopefully beyond and, and feels like something um, less of a replication or a mirror image and more of a kind of imagination, creative sort of idea of that person. Well, on that topic, I mean, you make a point as often as possible to distinguish that this is a character. And, you know, the UK culture secretary, Oliver Dowden, recently suggested warnings should be added to the series to sort of alert viewers that it is fictional. And I know Netflix has said there are no plans to do it. But I wonder, how do you feel about the whole idea? Like, do you think the show should have a disclaimer? I believe, and always have done, and continue to believe that with any work that anyone makes, actually, you have to show the, your audience respect and not underestimate the intelligence of an audience. Um, in response to Oliver Dowden kind of coming out and saying this, I saw someone on Twitter saying the big clue is the actors <laughs> and and their actors. But in, and I understand the point, but in some ways that's kind of patronising. I think I think the point is actually. It is clear. I do understand why there maybe is confusion. I think, look, what Peter Morgan does brilliantly and why I love the show is that he takes historical moments and he uses them to punctuate the fiction, our narrative. So rather than come up on the screen and say, um, Thatcher's election was in XXX, he just goes, here's Thatcher's election or here's the, the rehearsal of Diana and Charles's wedding, so you know where you are in time. And then we don't dwell on it because it's not interesting. None of us know the reality. What's interesting is relationships and family and duty and all these kind of Shakespearean epic questions 
that Peter explores so well. And so my personal view is that audiences understand uh, you have to show them the respect and, and, and understand that they're intelligent enough, I think, to see it for what it is, which is, yeah, pure fiction. I think part of it, too, is just people of a certain age remember that era and, you know, the sort of scandal of it all. And in the years since, Prince Charles has really sort of rehabilitated his image. You know, people really have a liking to him and find him, you know, charming and like somewhat goofy at times or whatever. And the series sort of puts front and center again, like this moment. And like, I think I read somewhere that Prince Charles and Camilla have even stopped their Twitter accounts because of the comments they're getting. And so I guess it's just an interesting, like what it's rehashing for some people that maybe weren't around when it happened or whatever. To me, it's that breaks my heart, the idea that they're getting any kind of backlash. And I would just plead to anyone that, that we have a responsibility when you watch a piece of drama to understand that it is a piece of drama and it's not the truth. There are documentaries and even the documentaries are tricky because some of the documentaries are brutal <laughs> about Charles and about Diana or about the Queen or about whoever. Even documentaries are tricky because they're an account from someone's perspective. This is a whole other ballgame. This is literally a single writer's imagined world played by actors. I mean, it's like kind of crazy. But I, yeah, I wouldn't wish that on anyone, uh, particularly not Prince Charles, who seems to me to be a pretty great person, in my opinion. And so I would, I would hate to think that. And I think that there's a responsibility... Yeah, I think there's a responsibility, actually, that we were slightly let down by our culture secretary... <laughs> whose job it is to encourage culture and should, in my opinion, uh, you know, I think it's pretty outrageous that he came out <laughs> and, and said what he said, but particularly in this time when he knows that the arts are struggling and they're on their knees, I think it's a bit of a, a, bit of a low blow. A perfect glass of wine makes all the difference. And the LA Times Wine Club, powered by First Leaf, can deliver that and more right to your front door. All you have to do is take a short quiz to determine your preferences. Then six bottles of award-winning wine personalized to your taste will be shipped directly to you. You'll get six bottles of wine for only $39.95, plus free shipping. Sign up today at latimes.wine podcast. One of the great thrills of watching The Crown for some viewers, including myself, is going down the research rabbit hole, like looking up events, clippings, photos. And I read that you were basically assigned your own sort of research team dedicated to Prince Charles. Is this true? And like, what sorts of questions did you find yourself asking them? Yeah, I mean, it's I'm obsessive about research and, and love it, but not in a kind of I suppose not in your traditional way, in, insofar as, you know, I'm not, I was never that interested in what cologne does Charles wear or, you know, where does he eat or what does he eat or anything about the real person. I found didn't actually help me an awful lot. I did have a research team, which was so helpful because it meant that I, if I did have a question about anything, you know, if there was a kind of contextual question, 
uh, where was Charles when Diana was doing this press conference? And they can tell me. And they answer, like, immediately. And, and they're incredible. Um, so that was really helpful. The majority of my research is to do with character and, and creating fictional characters. And so focusing on why marriages break down in reality, what, you know, relationships with parents and how complicated that is. Because at the heart of this, this is a story about family. And it's a story about relationships. And as I said earlier, you know, to me, the interest in playing Prince Charles wasn't playing this public figure. It's the, the idea of exploring masculinity and the fragility of masculinity and the kind of the epic questions that face, you know, men in the, in the world of power. How important is it for you in your performance of Prince Charles as a young man to sort of think about the Prince Charles of today? Like, does that come into play for you at all, thinking about where he is now? No, not really. I mean, one of the things that I think did help was that, you know, in season three and season four, actually, you know, in terms of the question of waiting for your mother to die in order for your life to take meaning, this idea of purgatory, of being the man in waiting, I suppose it's, it, yeah, it kind of helps to know that he's still waiting because <laughs> um, that just brings a kind of an, uh, another element of like, oh, tragic. I, I really didn't spend very long looking at him, the man. This loops into everything that we were talking about, about Oliver Dowden and to do with fiction and reality. This really is a work of fiction. The one that I always use as an example for this is um, there was a brilliant Todd Haynes film called I'm, I'm Not There which is about Bob Dylan. I'm a big Bob Dylan fan. And so when they were making this movie, I was like, you better get it right. I hope they look like Dylan and sound like Dylan. And, and when it came out, there was eight actors playing different versions of Dylan. None of them looked like Dylan, apart from Kate Blanchett, who looks kind of similar to what I, I knew of Dylan. But it's one of my favourite films. And the reason it's so successful is that what Todd Haynes does is he says, none of us know who Dylan is. And so what's the point in trying to replicate the Dylan we think we know. Kate Blanchett had the aspect of his personality which we think we know, which is the kind of public perception, the rock star. But then you've got Heath Ledger playing the kind of movie star version. You've got, you know, a young black boy playing the kind of Woody Guthrie-inspired Dylan. You know, you've got various actors playing different versions of Dylan that we don't recognise. And that, to me, was really interesting. So um, I think, I suppose, in a similar way that Charles... That was the kind of approach for me. It was like, let's not focus on the real person. Let's find something else. Like, what, what, what can we create, basically? Well, I also wanted to talk with you about your art. I mean, you come from a creative family. Your brother's an artist. Your grandfather on your mother's side was a sculptor. And your grandma is a ceramicist. And you've shared some of your work on Instagram, some of your drawings. Do you see that it has informed your work in any way as an actor? Like... Do you often find that you draw while working on a character? Um, I find myself drawing all the time. I've got, like, drawings everywhere around my house um, that I'm just kind of, like, constantly going and with pen and paper. So I'm always drawing, but never, never specifically for a character. I grew up with, as, as I said earlier, like, with a ceramicist grandmother and a, a sculptor as a grandfather and... I suppose there's something about craft and making work and, and using your hands, you know, that always interests me. I, I want to make stuff that people can enjoy in, in the same way as when my grandmother makes a, a ceramic. It's about giving pleasure to someone and, and 
that's always interested me, I suppose. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I, I guess um, it kind of has influence insofar as I'm interested in art and creating good, you know, interesting work. Well, I also read that you create scrapbooks for each of your characters. How did that process of getting acquainted with your character in that way start? Like, what was the first project you did that with? But I've been doing scrapbooks since I was a kid. You know, we used to go on holiday and you'd create a scrapbook as, to, as a memory. And then I sort of did a bit of character work when I was training at drama school and sort of found some bits. The first time it really kind of landed and I realised this really helps me was a film I made called God's Own Country. And in that movie, I was, I was playing someone who's totally different to myself and and a completely, you know, I lost lots of weight and worked on a farm and like a different, totally different accent, totally different part of the world. What I wanted to do was create a memory bank so that, you know, in some ways, nothing to do with the script. I mean, it was stuff like my first kiss or the first time I looked at a man and went, oh, I think I'm, I'm gay or, you know, any of those like moments in your life that aren't in the script. So that if ever there was a scene where, you know, I was struggling and going, you know, where's the depth? Who's this character? I could just go back to the scrapbook and it, it would summon up a memory or a feeling. And from there it's developed, you know, I've put smells in there and um, stuff to touch, you know, if we talk about my fascination in craft and touching, and then I suppose that's what the scrapbooks are about. It's about finding textures that you can feel and smell, and so you viscerally take in this character. So I suppose that's that's where it comes from. And but God's Own Country was probably the first time it really sort of came together. You went really method for God's Own Country because I saw that you also were helping during breaks you were like delivering calves or something right that's right I was lambs actually which is great I mean I was I don't know if I'm very good but that's amazing it was a joy you'd be like acting and then they go cut and you deliver a lamb and then wash your hands and then action and you go again it's mad absolutely mad I'd do it again any day what made it into the Prince Charles scrapbook was there something especially that like you really went to great lengths to put in there or that really that you turned to a lot there was a particular smell that I'm kind of very interested in like I didn't go to a crazy posh public school but he did and what I loved in season two of the crown there's a brilliant episode in Gordonston with a young Charles and he's doing cross-country running and I used to do cross-country running when I was a kid and there's a something there's a very unique smell of stale damp sports kit which would have like muddy sports kit. And I, I remember trying, I found this piece of cloth, which kind of was like hard cotton, which reminded me of, of the kind of clothes, you know, the running shorts you wear. And I was like stuffing it in mud and throwing water at it and then stuffed it in a plastic bag and left it for a couple of days. And it was in my flat for a little while. It was horrible, but it, it did kind of work. I sort of managed to get a bit of that smell. Um, and sort of helped me for a bit because I keep all my scrapbooks and they're hidden away, but. The sports kit had to go, unfortunately. <laughs> well, I also wanted to talk to you about Emma, which also stars the great Anya Taylor-Joy. And it's, you know, a retelling of the classic Jane Austen story. And you play Mr. Elton, the sort of self-involved priest who has his eyes set on Emma. How did you develop his sense of comic timing? Because this was like the first time doing a proper comedy, right? Yeah, maybe the last, no. Um, I I sort of loved it. 
My reputation in the UK has been British indie films where I play very serious, troubled men. And I'd, I'd just done season three of The Crown. I was about to go and do season four. I was thinking, like, I would take some time out between. And uh, Autumn Dewald came and said, you know, do you want to play Elton? And first of all, Autumn Dewald, I loved and... and We've become very good friends, but I, I think she's a real talent. And and so there was something about her which kind of grabbed me. But but I think also just the opportunity to play something kind of... Because Elton's dark. I mean, he is dark and he's he's funny because it's a very gestured role. You know, there's lots of kind of hand movements, which I quite enjoyed. But I, I suppose it was just kind of... It was like a total opposite of what I've done before. It was everything I strive for is kind of to to try and be as kind of subtle as I can or make decisions that feel very authentic. And and Emma felt like uh, an opportunity to go, screw all that, let's just go for it. And it was, I loved every second and I'm really proud of it. And 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 the, one of the great things about Emma, of course, is the, the cast, which we all have a WhatsApp group. We're all still very great, great friends. And you're all having moments right now. I mean, Anya and the Queen's Gambit. I mean, it's... I think she's totally extraordinary. She is extraordinary anyway, but I think... Yeah, she, she's going to pick up all the awards for that, I think. She's magic. I was just sad that in Emma, you didn't get to partake in one of the dance sequences. That's the whole thrill of a period drama. <laughs> you were probably relieved. I would say, Yvonne, that you um, you might feel like you missed out, but I'm telling you, you did not. I'm a terrible dancer, as you'll see in the ground. But I quite liked, because in that dance, I quite like that he's just horrible. I mean, that's like one of the worst scenes. He's really horrible. To poor Mia Goth, who's so lovely. <laughs> Terrible. Well, the pandemic thwarted plans for National Theatre's production of Romeo and Juliet, but it will now be filmed and will air on PBS and Sky Arts. How was it to sort of shift gears with it sort of being reconceived for the screen? Like, do you like this moment that we're in in terms of trying to figure everything out and trying to find creative ways to get stuff to audiences. Romeo and Juliet was a funny one because basically Jesse Buckley, who's playing Juliet, is an old friend of mine and we're, we're very close and we've been trying to find something to do together for a long time and particularly in the theatre because I actually started in the theatre and loved doing theatre and want to continue to do theatre but it's very obviously it's very hard and and I realised that I hadn't done one in sort of four years or something which to me is shocking so this was a perfect opportunity to do something with Jesse at the National Theatre and a really exciting production what's been so joyful is that throughout lockdown Jesse myself uh, artistic director of the National Theatre Rufus Rufus Norris and Simon Godwin our director were having meetings like weekly, about how can we tell this story? How can we tell this story so that people can see it? And what we've come up with is something that is kind of unique. I mean, it's not a film, really. It's not theatre as such, but it is on a stage. It's not television. It's kind of, I mean, it's really interesting. It's going to be something kind of that we're all kind of working out. We're filming at the moment. We've only got a three-week shoot. So we're shooting the whole of Romeo and Juliet in three weeks, which is extraordinary. It's magic. I'm like having the time of my life to work with Jessie, who I think is, in my opinion, the greatest actress of my generation. She's completely mind-blowing. It's a dream. I love it. I'm loving it. Well, I look forward to seeing it. But, you know, Josh, before I let you go, this is a TV and film podcast. So tell me what you've watched lately that you recommend. Oh, great. 
Well, obviously, Queen's Gambit was a great success in my household. You got to buy a chess set. Yeah, exactly. I know. I've, I actually already have ordered one. I mean, I can't play chess, so we'll see. No, the thing that actually for me, there's people will think I'm biased, but I'm really not. I was lucky enough to see Ammonite a few weeks ago, which is Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan and my dear friend Francis Lee has directed. In my opinion, it's a masterpiece. And I know people, audiences will have to wait a little while to see it, I imagine, but it's truly like a masterpiece. And Kate is extraordinary, Search is extraordinary. I can't wait for people to see it. Yvonne, I was so happy to hear Josh uh, mention the movie Ammonite. You know, he had previously worked with that filmmaker, Francis Lee, on God's Own Country. And, and so it was just really exciting to hear him mention that, too. Yeah, did you see that film? Oh, yeah. I, I, Ammonite's terrific. You know, it's got Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan. It's this very delicate but intense kind of period romantic drama. It's on the windswept beaches of England. It's it's really fantastic. Yes, it's definitely on my list of things to watch. I really did enjoy God's Own Country. And so that's why I, I liked hearing what he had to say about, you know, preparing these scrapbooks and how he sort of really gets into the mind of these characters. And I mean, he's out there delivering baby lambs while he's, you know, filming this movie. I mean, who else does that? That's great. And the gym shorts. <laughs> yeah. And now before we wrap up, Yvonne, uh, I should ask you, what, what have you been watching? Well, I've been doing some film viewing to sort of break things up. You know, I was getting into my HGTV hole, so I had to crawl out of it. I saw Palmer, the Justin Timberlake film that's on Apple, I believe. I saw Sylvie's... L- You're the one. <laughs> I'm the one. I'm the one. And I saw Sylvie's Love, which, oh my God, the score for that movie, it was so, so good. And the performances. Have you seen that one? I have, yeah. I I, uh, I wrote a story about it, actually. Tessa Thompson, Namdi Asamoa the, the, are just so good in it. The costumes are so fantastic. They got these vintage Chanel gowns for Tessa Thompson to wear. That movie, you just want to, like, step inside and just live in that movie. That music was so calming. And I didn't know Namdi, like, he learned sax for it. Is that right? That's amazing. Yeah, although it's funny. When I interviewed him for for the story that I did, he said he was, like, he was looking at the saxophone. He was, like, sitting in the room where he keeps the saxophone, but he has not picked it up in quite a while. Wow. Well, so next on my list is I'm still trying to get my way to Nomadland, and I know it's going to be out soon. That's on my list. Is there anything you're looking forward to? Uh, well, I, it's funny, you know, the Sundance Film Festival recently wrapped up, so I was very deep into Sundance movies, many of which, you know, have been picked up and hopefully will be coming out, you know, throughout the course of the year, Coda, which kind of won big at, at the awards. Also, the Questlove documentary, Summer of Soul. But there were lots of other films, including one with Tessa Thompson, where she stars with Ruth Nega called Passing, that was directed by Rebecca Hall. And that movie was really terrific, too. And then I've been doing a little television watching as well. I'm not finished yet, but I'm very deep into the current season, the fourth season of Search Party, which is a show that I, I always really like, in part because two of the co-creators on that show, Sarah Violet Bliss and Charles Rogers, they made this little movie called Fort Tilden that played at the South by Southwest Film Festival, had a little bit of a life of its own. But to me, I get so excited when, you know, people, you see them do one thing and then they go on to do something that's much bigger and more successful. And also the cast on uh, Search Party is just all so, so good. I know I had a friend who just mentioned that he started Search Party and I always get so jealous when people are starting it, like, 
I always remember what it was like experiencing it for the first time. I, I get jealous knowing people are going on that journey because it's a really, really good show. And this fourth season, it's every season they do such a great job of like changing it up a little bit, like twisting it somewhat. And at first I was like fighting this new season a little bit, but I think from where I am in the season now, I'm pretty well hooked. And now I'm really excited to see what, what happened. They broke you down. They got to you. Well, one of the films that I'm most excited to see, um, you actually talked to the filmmaker for. So talk a little bit about who you have next week coming up. Yeah, that's going to be uh, writer-director Lee Isaac Chung. He he made the film Minari that uh, got nominated for both some Globes and some SAG Awards recently. And it's a, a semi-autobiographical, deeply personal story about a Korean-American family that, that moves to, to rural Arkansas. And yeah, it's really one of the top films of the year. And I think it's one we're going to be, you know, even apart from award season, that's a movie we're going to be talking about and remembering for a very long time. I didn't expect any of this to happen. Obviously, for it to happen during these times has tempered it in a way um, and, and made me feel very sober about it. But at the same time, I mean, just, just to have these opportunities. I am that kid from Arkansas <laughs> who grew up in a trailer home. So it is unreal. Love that. Come back next Wednesday to hear that conversation with Mark and Lee. The Envelope, the podcast, is hosted by me, Mark Olson, and my colleague, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Shannon Lynn, and our executive producer is Abby Fender-Swanson. Our audio engineer is Mike Heflin. He also wrote our themes. If you like The Envelope, the podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a five-star review on Apple. The Envelope is created by the journalists at the Los Angeles Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important. And the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Is a baby lamb a calf? I don't know. I don't know my livestock. I should. (laughs) 